Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, reading A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 134, Catalan Six in a Clash of Kings. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. The penultimate <laughs> chapter. It is, it is, and it is a packed chapter, and actually includes one of my favorite cat scenes that also happens to be one of my favorite Brienne scenes I love that exchange between them in, in this chapter I think it's so yes. it's so great for both of them yeah I honestly really forgot kind of the the intimate relationship they form in class yeah. right before the old sending off sending off on the trip down the river down the river which down the river I'm, run. <laughs> down the river run I'm honestly more excited for the next chapter I-, I love this chapter and i'm excited to talk about it with you but next week next week we have a treat for you all yes so part of why chloe is very excited for the next chapter not only is it you know a very good chapter right we get to revisit jamie lannister but we are also going to visit have a visit we are having our friend Monero from Monero geek tv on youtube on I'm so excited. Monero always has us over to her YouTube channel to wear red lipstick and yes. get drunk and talk about ridiculous things. So we're excited because this chapter is kind of kind of the summation of all that, right? The seventh cat chapter is basically just like getting really blasted on bad wine in the dungeons. <laughs> Only so, one of them's getting blasted, but yeah. That's true. Yeah, and one of them stinks over, and that'll be, you know, Monero. <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and are we the prisoners? <sighs> Maybe. Maybe we're the prisoners in our own podcast. And nonetheless, we will leave a link. You've got to check out Monero's YouTube channel. Yes. Just She covers everything with so many people, different shows that are on TV, always having great roundtable discussions. And it's it's a great YouTube channel. It's really a nice, like, homey YouTube channel. I like to... I like to just watch stuff on there. Yeah, and I'm just, well, part of why I'm so excited that Monero said that one of the characters that she would love to join us for was Kat, uh, is because my first introduction to Monero was finding her live streaming a discussion about Kat along with T-Baby, um, and I think it was mm-hmm. specifically about the parlay over at Storm's End, so I thought, what mm-hmm. a perfect way for her to join yeah. us. And Monero did do a great series on House Lannister yes. a bit ago. Yes. That was just really, really good. Really feels significant for this chapter. And, you know, I will say, I know Monero is a, a little bit more in the middle um, when it comes to Kat's character. I think we'll get a really good analysis mm-hmm. from Monero on kind of her thoughts and what she feels about Catelyn's motives. Absolutely. I'm super jazzed to have Monero on. But, you know, if you... Don't just want to listen to us talk about A Song of Ice and Fire. We're also doing another thing that's kind of different, kind of kind of special this month. Yeah, we have a special Patreon episode, which, of course, if you are in the stranger tier or above on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, you will get access to bonus episodes every month. Normally, we do A Song of Ice and Fire episodes every other month and His Dark Materials episodes every other other month for patrons, but... This month, there's a very special event. Someone was born this month that I know, and we are doing a special book that that someone might like called Ella Enchanted. (laughs) And you know what? Turns out that person is also Chloe. Chloe, did you know you were born in August? 
I was not. That is, <laughs> that's not the lore. Who are you? It's the other. Don't lie it's to them. The they know. Months. We're both born in. I feel like months. everyone would be able to know who was actually like. Yeah, everyone should know who's which fire sign by now. Let's be real. You're way it's more the, a Leo yeah, than I am an Aries. <laughs> Why do we have lore about us? I digress. But yes. Oh, wait, that's lore too. Shit. Shit. That, that uh, is lore. Oh my god. Um, Ella Enchanted, which more like Eliana Enchanted is what we're going to call maybe. it this month. But, you know, I did reread it last week. And I will say, Prince Char, C-H, C-H, Chloe, Char, it's oh, close. It is I'm Prince Char. Char, nope. I was going to try and combine your names and then turns Charmander. out. Charmander. It ended up as just Charlie. And I was like, that's stupid. <laughs> Less fun. Yeah, less fun. I was like, I did well, that wrong. This book is definitely a book that both of us grew up reading. It has a strong heroine, you know, running around, saving the day or saving herself, which is also mm-hmm. very exciting. I really respect that. Uh, I, I will say I'm going to bring some Bridgerton thoughts, too, oh, when we talk about this book. Yeah. And, and I might watch the movie this weekend oh just God. to, you know, get a feel for how much was different again. How much Because last taken- time I watched the movie was like when it came out probably as a kid yeah i again refused to watch it i was like that seems like a whole ass mess and you know you know how my uh history with um cinematic adaptations of books being on this you know podcast here that um i'm sorry i i don't even know what i'm talking about because we're talking about books that adapted a television show so don't listen to me um but well, we will have that episode out sometime this month for patrons by the end of August, by the end of uh, uh, of the good old season of Eliana. So <laughs> the month of Eliana. Oh so keep an eye out for that. And we will be doing Discord brunch and happy hour this month as well. We are going to be doing that on Saturday, August 28th. So keep an eye out for more information if you're a patron in the Thunder tier and above. That will be coming your way soon. We have yet to figure out our theme and we will shoot that as soon as we know. Other things are, while we do not have a His Dark Materials Patreon episode this month, we will still have our regularly scheduled His Dark Materials episode at the end of August. We are on the Amber Spyglass, so just keep an ear out for that. Absolutely. Well, before we run into this episode, we did get an email earlier, and I was I was very enthralled by this yes. email. We got an email from our friend Kathy, who rescued Kat. I'm so sorry. I just misread this email. Hold on. She rescued a cat. Wrong cat. Oh. Never mind. <laughs> Disregard. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I did read the email. I knew it was an actual cat. We knew. We knew. We knew. She rescued a cat. Yeah. And, and it's so cute. She sent us some little pictures. You know, uh, the cat, Luna, had a few, has to kind of get her life together a little, which I get. I'm getting my life together every day. So, Luna, you go off, kitten. But we will hopefully get some pictures of this adorable rescue cat to share with you all on our social media over at, uh, you can find us Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N. Maybe we'll post it on Patreon. You never know. Yeah. So thank you so much, Kathy. Oh, Kathy rescuing a cat. cat. Yeah, I know. There's yeah. there's a lot going on here. Was not lost on me. Yeah. It was I, not lost Thank on you, me. Kathy, for not only sending us pictures of Luna, but also being very on theme with the chapters that we are on. Uh, no, these pictures are fantastic. I also love the choice of the name Luna, you know, because, of course, cats named Luna have special places in my heart, also in Chloe's heart, because of yes. Sailor Moon, so. Moon prism power, bitch. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, we're going to talk about a different kind of moon soon in our lightning round. The moon of Caladrogo's life, mm-hmm. and by that I mean he's dead. Daenerys 3. Zaro Zoandaxis does not want to help Daenerys. That much is becoming clear. She turns to the Undying in hopes of support. That is wild that it is just Daenerys 3 and we're on Cat 6. Yeah, it's really paced very slowly, isn't it? So interesting. Uh, Interestingly enough, we do get right around this actual House of the Undying next time. So I'm kind of, I think it picks up the speed toward the mid end of the book for her. Yeah, yeah, that's just interesting. Because also alongside is Tyrion 9. Princess Marcella's farewell turns into a riot. Davos 2. Davos must assist the Lady Melisandre in a much quieter Warcraft than he's used to. John 5. One blast signals brothers returning, and Corrin Halfhand and his 100 men come with news of Mance Raider's army. Tyrion 10. Tyrion tries to hire his already hired girlfriend, who for some reason, wildly unbeknownst to Tyrion, is offended at this. He hears of the witchcraft Stannis' camp is performing and hopes to kill his sister someday with witchcraft of his own. Very deep down within. These are all deep, hidden thoughts of Tyrion's, you know? Yeah. Instead he gives her diarrhea for now. (laughs) Typical younger sibling pranks, allegedly, that I've heard. Um, Catelyn 6. Although victories are on the rise, Catelyn's mood is bitter, mournful, full of regret and confusion. And this is just the penultimate Clash chapter. It is. We open up with a passage from a a scrawl of paper. Tell father I've gone to make him proud. Her brother swung up into his saddle, every inch the lord in his bright mail and flowing mud and water cloak. A silver trout ornamented the crest of his great helm, twin to the one painted on his shield. He was always proud of you, Edmir, and he loves you fiercely. Believe that. I mean to give him better reason than mere birth. Edmir wheels off, trumpets are sounding, drums booming, and the drawbridge falls. He leads his men out of River Run, and Catelyn thinks, I have a greater host than yours, brother. A host of doubts and fears. As always, I love the chapter openings just in general, and looking at this, Edmir has this very interesting complex where he somehow still feels like he's never been able to live up to his father's expectations. Perhaps that's due to the lack of like marriage and also the lack of a track record when it comes to battles. But I would also say that there really hasn't been much opportunity for Edmir to prove himself in that way, because like the way that the songs say that men should, right, like in battle, because for most of Edmure's adulthood until now, like it's been pretty, it's been relatively peaceful in Westeros. I mean, there was a Greyjoy rebellion, but he was probably very, very young then still. And in the context of later this chapter, so we see Catelyn here musing on having always done her duty, and then right after Edmure's leaving, she has these bitter thoughts, right, of watching her brother head off to battle, and. I kind of wonder if there's more to Catelyn telling her brother that Hoster has always been proud of him, especially when Edmure says that he wants Hoster to be proud of him for more than, like, mere birth. So when Catelyn's telling Edmure that, like, father's always been proud, I think we can read into it. Like, obviously, she's just kind of reassuring him as an older sister, right? But there's that undertone of bitterness because of those thoughts afterwards. And I wonder if there's a bitterness 
because Hoster was always proud of Edmure implicitly just for having been born and the fact that he was a son right after his first two sons died and thanks to Edmure just being born his mere birth Hoster's seat in the family line were then secure and you know, he succeeded in finally getting himself another heir, thanks to Edmure. And unlike how Tyrion has all of this baggage hanging over his head from Joanna dying while giving birth to Tyrion, Edmure doesn't have that as much, because uh, his mother didn't die giving birth to him. And yeah. while Edmure was born with that pride implicitly, Catelyn, on the other hand, has constantly had to do her duty in order to feel worthy of Hoster's pride, more and more responsibility keeps falling on her shoulders uh, as she suddenly gets thrust into the eldest child's role and then Lady of the House. And then has to, like, do all these things, right? To hold her house together and then later on, you know, be the glue for a military alliance and then also suffer humiliation within that marriage alliance. Yeah, and it, it is kind of a, a bit of a bummer, too, because some of that pride in how Edmure is trying to prove himself, as you outlined, it does get highlighted in the fact that it feels right now like his war his war tactics are working and he's winning and Catalan's trying to be like, you know, maybe I'll set it aside and just let him have his day. But in the end, they really don't. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a real bummer. We'll get to that hollow kind of feeling at the end of the chapter. And, and for now, before we go to that hollow feeling, I do want to praise him because there's this mm -hmm. really strong recurring thread right now in the mid-end of Clash. This is one of the strongest beats of it, that the small folk are a recurring applause in River Run. They're like a track in the background cheering them, shouting them. They're very present. They're very seen in the yards in these chapters. Uh, a really great choice to bring them inside the walls, first of all. So yes. good job, Admir, on that. Yes. Uh, but it's strongly paralleled with the chapters around it. Right before this in Tyrion's chapter, we have him begrudgingly pledging to save those insufferable, awful, monstrous people that hate him. After this, we have Bran immediately yielding Winterfell, remembering to himself that a good lord protects his people no matter what. And in the two chapters from now, we have the Arya chapter, right, where she yearns to free the Northmen for the cause in Harrenhal and try to save these men that are captive. Uh, I think that's such a strong beat right now in this part of clash of war and keeping people safe. Yeah, yeah. And Catelyn does admire that in Edmure, but she doesn't, I guess because it's interesting, she's not raised to, I guess, have that. Mm -hmm. She's more worried about her immediate family than she is about saving the small folk. So Yeah, it's not her job to worry about them right now. Yeah, good on that. She's never had to. Well, I guess she could have, but like, Thankfully, you know, I guess Edmure was born, so. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> Actually, thank thank God for Edmure. Anyway, Brienne is miserable, though, as well. Catelyn had attempted to dress her, but uh, <laughs> Brienne obviously wants nothing of these, like, fine garments, right? She prefers to wear her mail and boiled leather, and Catelyn knows that I guess Brienne would probably be happier at war with Edmure, uh, but... You know what? River Run requires some strong swords to protect those staying behind, okay? Yeah, there's actually this line that stood out on Reread so hard for, for two reasons. Even walls as strong as River Runs require swords to hold them. What happens in, like, the next chapter? Winterfell? Yeah. There are no swords there yeah. to hold Winterfell. Winterfell falls. And then, yes. not just that, but in A Feast for Crows, River Run falls. 
some pretty strong foreshadowing to come there in that one line. And the other thing that really stood out on this read here is that Catelyn dresses Brienne in garments that are not fitted well to Brienne, to her tastes, right? And Jamie, who's a knight later on in the story in, her, in his plot, fits her with clothing that, you know, actually fits her. Yeah. Uh, mostly because he knows what she would want as a fighter, as a soldier, as a knight. And I think that's really interesting that Catelyn does not, this is just one of those moments, Catelyn does not understand Brienne's dreams and hopes and wants. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of what's so interesting about their interactions is they try to understand one another. Yeah, they try to mesh, but it's two different worlds they're coming from. Yeah. Catelyn's reaction to that hole she's been put in versus Brienne's reaction. Though there's clearly a respect there, but it's it mm-hmm. I think that's that's what is so great. That's one of the things that I again, I love this chapter. I guess I say that about most Catelyn chapters, so that's not really fair. That doesn't mean anything anymore anyway. I mean, they're all great chapters. That's like, true. Even in this one, I will say like I'm going to I'm going to get on Cat's case for a couple things this chapter, yeah. you know, got to be the fair, the mean cop here, but I mean, I get on uh, her case for a couple of things, too. And you know what? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, right? Yeah, that doesn't mean she's not a good character. She's a great character. That's, that's part of what part makes of, her such a good character. Part of it, yeah. Absolutely. The able-bodied men have been taken for the Fords. They're all protecting the Fords and kind of giving the Lannisters the runaround. And Desmond Grell was planning to hold River Run with a garrison of wounded, old, sick as well as some squires and peasant boys, so uh, not looking good. Again, again with that foreshadowing, if you only have wounded, old, sick, and squires and peasant boys, you really can't hold a castle. Yeah, I think Daenerys is the only one who have really got away with that, and that's because she had three dragons. <laughs> Brienne asked, what shall we do now, my lady? Our duty. Catelyn's face was drawn as she started across the yard. I have always done my duty, she thought. Perhaps that was why her lord father had always cherished her, best of all his children. Her two older brothers had both died in infancy, so she had been son as well as daughter to Lord Hoster, until Edmure was born. Then her mother died, and her father told her she must be Lady of Riverrun now. And she had done that, too. And when Lord Hoster promised her to Brandon Stark, she thanked him for making her such a splendid match. I gave Brandon my favor to wear. Never comforted Peter once he was wounded, nor bid him farewell when father sent him off. And when Brandon was murdered, and father told me I must wed his brother, I did so, gladly, though I never saw Ned's face till our wedding day. I gave my maidenhood to this solemn stranger, and sent him off to war, and his king, and the woman who bore him his bastard, because I always did my duty. So again, Brienne... Maybe a big part in this chapter, but also interestingly, you know, Catelyn's here thinking about how she's thrust into a position of being the the son, right? And then later on, Lady of the House, just like Brienne also, was had to be that, uh, now kind of as the only child, and Lady of Tarth, as well as taking on the heir role. Yeah, and again, to quote the great manimals, the band, not enough daughter, not enough son. That, that is something that those two can bond on together. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't personally love them, but I do love seeing the doubts that George is having seep yeah. into Catelyn's thoughts exuding throughout all of this. 
she's she's kind of starting to swim in her self-pity in this chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously by storm, we know that she's kind of drowning in it, not swimming in it. And good for her because life sucks. And I do this from time to time. But uh, it starts to be obvious that she wants others to be miserable like her. Mm. Not not in a totality like you should be miserable, but like she just doesn't want to let the people she has left go because then she'll be completely miserable. And this monologue really highlights a lot of that repression of those true emotions. Uh, some some of those like things, like no one ever wanted to question what those emotions were or value them, right? Like why would you value the emotions of what a woman who is being used as coin during wars feels about it? That's not what you're paying for. You're paying for swords. Uh, and that's what's manifested right into that Stoneheart persona. It's kind of what turns her to have this cold fire in her it's not the same as cersei's burning wildfire and her Mm -hmm. cruelness right her cruelty but catalan does begin to negotiate throughout this desperation because of her inability to do anything and i don't want to be uncharitable to her because if i were in the same position i would obviously do anything to get my children kidnapped by the enemy back and we'll get into that more in the next chapter with monero why we see her you know freak the fuck out in her River Run sex dungeon event with Jamie Lannister. It's like Jekyll Hyde style for a minute. She's like, I hate you. I love you. Give me my kids back, please. Holy shit. And, and I don't know. It's that on and off again of Peter being engaged, being not engaged, being engaged again, being not engaged again, then being a mother, also not being a mother. Uh, there's so much weighing on her mind that's significantly highlighted in this chapter, and it carries on to that next chapter perfectly. Yeah. That craving for vengeance to lash out and do something to these people that have wronged her for decades and this system that has wronged her. It, it's so tied to the history that she's tried to block out and forget. And in the next chapter, when Jamie confronts her with the real truth of most of these horrific events, it's kind of a horrible time. Like, this is all compartmentalized stuff that just comes rushing out. Absolutely. Yeah. Kat is not having a good time. (laughs) This is a time in the books when actually maybe no one's having a good time soon. But, (laughs) you know, as you were saying, it's a perfect lead-in to the next chapter. And I think what you've called out here of, like, this is it. This is the foundation for... Lady Stoneheart is interesting because I think I'm finding on this reread, as you as you point these out, that you know we're always. I feel like there's this sentiment that Catelyn is different from Lady Stoneheart. I mean, of course, right? Like in the way that like you and I, right? As we've said, we're different people than we were like in the past. But obviously, like mm-hmm. people mean that much more exaggeratedly when it comes to Catelyn and Lady Stoneheart. That Lady Stoneheart is missing something of Catelyn's. But more and more, I'm starting to question, like, is Lady Stoneheart really truly that different from the Catalan whose chapters we get? And I think what you said here and also some of the stuff that uh, our friend Alex has brought up in their emails is, you know, part of making me really reconsider that. And I think it's something that we'll obviously start seeing more and digging into more as we start getting closer to the end of Catalan's chapters and her final arcs. It's uh, it's sad because you can see it. She's forged, you know, like yeah. all of this is forged. It's inlaid in her soul. It's shit you can't just get out. You know, you don't just get the memory. It's like blood. You don't just get it out by rinsing it. Yeah, I mean, and, and Lady she hasn't Stone- even tried to rinse it. Shit. Yeah, Lady Stoneheart decides, what if we get it out by washing it with more blood? 
Is that what if we get it out by bathing in it? What if we get it out yeah. by laying in the blood and gargling it? That's the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, Catelyn's feet take her to the sept, where she kneels among many to pray. She lights a candle for Edmure and Rob at the warrior, praying for their safety and victory. Then a septon enters with the censer and crystal, and so she lingers for the celebration. And it's a young septon, pleasant enough, and you know did his duty well. But she finds herself missing the long, dead. Septon Osmond with his thin, quavering notes, and she imagines telling him her tale of Renly's death, and him telling her what he thought it may mean, as well as, you know, what she should do about the rest of the shadows that stalk her dreams. I love this little passage, because it's such a built passage. Mm. The first thing I love about it is how Catholic as hell it is, right? Uh, the Septon enters with censor and crystal, and yeah. he's a young Septon, and that right there just reminds me of, like, my grandparents attend this small Catholic church right in the middle of nowhere, and they ha- whenever they get a new priest, you know, that's always the big talk of the town. Like, oh, the new priest is really young. Oh, he's so young. And so to me, this is a total, like, Catholic people go to Mass and find out they have a new priest, and they're all like, there's a new Septon, and he's, sh- he's fine, but he's not like Septon Osmond. You know, he's kind of young. Uh, it's right. uh, it's just something I've literally heard before. It's very funny to me. I have a quick question, and like the quavering notes. Have you ever wondered? This is something I've wondered as I've gotten older. What if you sign up and you want to become a priest and you're not good at singing? I can tell you uh, that it's not that bad, right? Like the priests don't have the most job usually. Like Septons probably wouldn't have a huge job of the thin quavering notes because behind every priest that can't sing. There are a bunch of women in a choir at church that can either sing or sing louder and more off-key than him. That's true, because now that I think about it, sometimes they don't always lead us on that, but some of them insist on trying. I'm like, maybe those are the ones who really do love to sing. Anyways. Man, at my grandparents' church, I'm telling you, we had this lady for the longest time. (laughs) That was just the worst. She was just, every song was over-exaggerated and... You know, by God, it's hard to make fun of her now because I think about it and I'm like, she must have been so passionate. Anyways, let's return to these these shadows stalking her dreams and Septon Osmond here. The shadows stalking her dreams. First of all, here's Lady Stoneheart once more. She's a coming, right? The, the shadow stalking her dreams. Yeah. That's like a very dark nightmare explanation. And it does remind me of Bran's vision of oh, uh, of the shadows, you know being over his sisters with the mountain and the golden sun and everything and the darkness. It, interesting. It does remind me of Bran's little visions, too. And that is interesting, especially, yeah, that and the, obviously the Renly stuff. That's that's nightmare feel mm-hmm. if you, like, actually saw that. Yeah. Uh, but also the shadows are this recurring theme that we've been seeing throughout Catelyn's chapters of, like, the men who have failed to protect her and her family, right? Like... And you know, she doesn't have it in her yet, right? She's starting to get there to hold mm-hmm. bitterness against them. But I think it would hit too close to home. Except for, I don't know, maybe she's a little bitter against Renly. Stannis doesn't, uh, <laughs> I think, make a cameo in this line. He does later on. She would probably hold a grudge against him because, you know, you don't just, again, go around threatening people's kids. But I also think it's interesting that she would trust this Septon Osmond, you know, coming back to... You know, being familiar with one of the priests, right? She trusts Septon Osmond enough to, like, confide in him of, like, yo, I saw a shadow 
kill like that not even that like to to open up about this like act of regicide and i also think it's interesting you know based on the location and his name osmond i'm just like and the trust that catelyn has in him any chance that maybe he was he was a went chloe yo i'm not even kidding you eliana that i thought this immediately only because the weirder thing this might be just a weird gardening thing for Septon Osmond and George might have just wanted some familiarity for Kat of being home and thinking of memories, right? So let's just put that one out there. That's going to be our like small brain take on this one, okay? <laughs> Next big brain take. This guy only is mentioned in A Clash of Kings. Literally wow. is only mentioned in Clash of Kings, which is also where the Kettleblacks really start to rise. So mm. that being said... The first Kettle Black is just about to get named the Kingsguard in Tyrion's chapters. Hmm. Uh, the timing is pretty out there. I was thinking it could, I mean, first of all, first thought, what if it was fucking Oswell went in disguise and he's dead now? So it wouldn't matter. So he's not. Okay, so that thought was dumb. But the next thought I had was like, what if Septon Osmond ended up being the uncle that had put on the big tourney, you know, for the daughter? The the unnamed uh, uncle. It could be. I don't know. It could be. Know. It could be. Interesting. It, yeah, I, as you said, it's probably gardening. It's probably gardening. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But like you said, like it's all coming in at this point in time in the book. But maybe like George was going through an Oz phase. I don't know. I don't know. Being near the Went, like being in the Riverlands, being yeah. related to the Wents, obviously, so obviously related, it just stands out very much so. Absolutely. Well, you know, she thinks of all of these men of Riveron, Osmond, Brendan, Maester Kim, and her father. She's like, they all knew everything, but now there is only her, and it feels like she knows nothing. And I find it so interesting that, again, without all these men, Catelyn has defined herself against and has decided that she doesn't know anything, which is very much a lot like Sansa convincing herself that she's mm -hmm. stupid. Um, Catelyn wonders, how can I do my duty if I do not know where it lies because she, who is she supposed to perform her duty for now, right? Uh, the only delineated role she can think of is maybe her duty as a mother, but she's far away from her youngest sons. Uh, she cannot protect her eldest, nor can she protect her daughters, who are also far away, and taken hostage, though one secretly has escaped. Also far away, though. And <laughs> that distance, that physical distance from her children one of them, it's an emotional distance because, A, first of all, teenagers, am I right? I'm joking. But also, am I right? Oh, my God. <laughs> but he cannot, he cannot afford to be mothered at this time or else he'll lose the respect of the men who are following him as king. So Catelyn's trying to figure out, all right, what is then my societal role? I don't have a blueprint for this. And I also find it really pointed that among the lines that she thinks in this moment are, I know nothing. Not even my duty. Which probably reminds us of another character who comes up, like, in this chapter. And we're going to come back to this line, too, later on. But here mm. with Catelyn's character and her feelings of uselessness without a defined role uh, or, or a need for her, uh, remind me a little of another character who is also kind of a queen, but kind of not really. But more of like the her role would be thought of as like a mother to a king in another series that I have started recently, Stormlight Archive, from a, an author who is allegedly dependable. Um, uh, and that character is Navani. Damn. 
she's mother to a king and she's also very much used to being an intellectual right using her head and she struggles with feeling like an outsider at court as people seem to think of her you know much less necessary right to have around because they're like oh she's the former king's widow like she doesn't need to do anything we don't really need to do like have her and they kind of just like amuse her right so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's interesting to see I that i have to read this goddamn series eliana i don't know you could if you wanted you don't have to but it like the allegedly the books do come out so the light the latest one came out in december is my understanding Jesus. if i'm if i'm not mistaken about the timing jen snow our friend wow. jen snow from the a song of ice and fire subreddit is a big fan i'm gonna have to get into them that sounds great and i, I really do love uh yeah i think you're right and god i want to say warren might be but I, i've been told to and now i think i might have to i'd really like to look into uh that that character navani sounds great i think you would like navani a lot yeah i i didn't even think of the john snow there that's really smart I know nothing, not even my duty, but she does feel lost right now. That feels really obvious, being feeling useless and lost, and it's only going to get worse, so buckle up. <laughs> it does get worse. Though, it's literally the whole book. Uh, though her knees feel much stiffer when she's done, Catalan feels no wiser, which I have to say, same. I feel that one. Uh, she thinks she might pray to Ned's gods later in the godswood. They're older than the seven. And she leaves the sept. She finds a different song playing out in the yard. Ryman the Rhymer is singing of Lord Derrimond at the Bloody Meadow to a circle of listeners. Brienne pauses to listen as well. Catalan thinks, a mob of ragged boys raced by, screeching and flailing at each other with sticks. Why do boys so love to play at war? She wondered if Ryman was the answer. Mm. I love this line, this little passage. It's some George meta, all right, mm-hmm. because we know we know who George is and what he's about, and you know how he's a little bit anti-war, right? George R. R. Martin's a little bit like, just war might be bad sometimes, just a little fucking hippie. But <laughs> this is like some singer propaganda making legends, right? Telling the boys, you want to be famed, you want to die young, uh, which, of course, the opposite is true for... You know, the young girls looking at the princes with stars in their eyes and the knights in the jousts, which is really the entire thesis of Sansa 2 in A Game of Thrones. Mm. But this reminds me of war propaganda badly, right? Uh, specifically, like, the the rise to fame for Ryman around the camp. That everyone's like, yeah, Ryman, write us a new one, write us a new one, and putting their stock mm. in this singer. And it does kind of, this line specifically, really reminds me of Elvis. Huh. Like, Interesting. Really badly, because Elvis got super, super popular for his rock and roll, right? And then he ends up entering the army. He was drafted into the army for two years. And it does seem like it was kind of like a, a, prove, a proven point, you know, that he went in like, aha, look at me. I'm a rock star. I'm America's sweetheart rock star out here causing outrage. And now I'm going to be in the army. Come be a good chap and get in the draft. Just thinking of singers kind of playing that role for the war camps, you know, like, ah, war brings money for a lot of these people and brings chances for a lot of these people. And the stakes are honestly really high and really awful to be like gambling with, in my opinion, (laughs) really, really crazy stakes to just be like, well, I could just, you know, go to war and finally have some sort of claim for something or make a home for myself somewhere after. But that isn't always how it works, right? 
because sometimes you die or you get injured or you have PTSD, which is always after war. So, yeah, I don't know, Raymond. You might need to start singing about some other stuff, <laughs> like floppy fishes. Here, that's yeah. a popular song. Get, take a Thomas Seven streams yeah. book page out of his book. Teach people about performance anxiety instead of uh, joining the war. But that's, I guess, part of why people want him here, right? They're they're enthralled mm-hmm. by that propaganda and hoping that they can join the effort. And it's like, no, no, peace. <sighs> well, some of the lines from the song are, I'm not going to put this to a tune. Being a singer-songwriter is not my strong point. It's not any uh, amongst any of my points. Um, come on, come on, the great lord called. My sword is hungry still, and with a cry of savage rage, they swarmed across the rill. So there you go. Those are the moments that get the listener's blood boiling in a good way. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what a good like riff for that could be, you know, like... Come on, come on, the great lord called. My sword is hungry still. <laughs> no. Who was that? Was that Creed? We just don't know. <laughs> Creed? Uh, I feel like there's a... Come on, come on. Oh, yeah, there's there's some band. Come on, come on, look a little oh harder. Look <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. Come on, come on. I'm accidentally Lord. in love. It's Shrek. You're thinking about Shrek. <laughs> oh, I'm always thinking about Shrek, to be honest, though. <laughs> uh, Brienne tells Catelyn, fighting is better than waiting. With sword in hand, you don't feel helpless. When you're armored, it's hard for anyone to hurt you. Catelyn says, knights die in battle, though. Brienne says, so do ladies in childbed. No one sings songs for them. Yeah, and I love, again, this exchange because here, this is where, you know, they have that moment where Catelyn and Brienne realize and discuss how childbirth, uh, the way that Catelyn sees it, is women's way of sort of their own battle, right? Like that the birthing bed is a battle and that again women die there quite a lot because there are high maternal mortality rates because you know Mm. technology and health and you know fun fact the u.s has the worst maternal mortality rates for a supposedly developed nation or amongst the developed quote-unquote nations no way why i know right isn't that isn't that surprising (laughs) It is kind of fucked up, though. I mean, yeah, you know, but I, we're in I a just, world of modern goddamn medicine. I just, yeah, and you know, like obviously, um, my thoughts on gender and gender roles in Westeros have changed over the years. But I, this has always just really struck me as such a powerful scene, as both of them, you know, kind of try to see eye to eye in terms of like, you know, this the danger is comparable in these moments and that the women's mm-hmm. role even though it's not sung of in songs there might not be like a societal glory in it it might not be commemorated but it's still dangerous and important it doesn't make it any less important not only just the mortality but like also what it means to to birth a child you know like you don't just yeah it doesn't just walk out of you and things are hunky-dory and that that can happen if you're real lucky but even then, this is such an emotional kind of passage for Kat because you think about, like, no matter what, when you have a kid, almost ev- you all, almost anyone that has a kid will 
get depression for at least a few days, if not up to weeks after birth. Like, or months. Most people, or months. And not just that, though, but 10 to 20% of new parents, birthing parents, will experience a more severe form of depression, like perinatal depression or postpartum, uh, that's crippling, it's debilitating, and that's not even on regular anxiety alone, right? Like, mm. birthing the little shitheads out is one thing, but then, like, keeping them for years and, and having them be an extension of yourself, as Catalan will say soon, uh, I was just talking to one of my coworkers today that they they were talking about how they're separated from their child's parent, their other parent, and they co-parent, but when they have to, you know, drop their kid off for the week or for the weekend somewhere else... It is debilitating. It, it ruins their everything, right? Like, they're lost because their whole day has been just, like, changed. Their whole lifestyle has changed suddenly, and it's hard for them to be able to separate and say, I will see you in five days. I will call you every day because they just are sad and worried. Yeah. That yeah. can put anyone over the edge, right? Like, when you have no control, when your normal life is uprooted. And, and then we see in that next chapter, you know, when her kids die, quote-unquote, uh, I mean, that's the thing they lo- they thought least possible, that Rick and, and Bran would die. They were like, they're fine. They're in the North. They're in great hands. This is for the, the North is strong. No worries. That's a mixture to put you right over the edge. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially because one of them's like her favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You're not supposed to have favorites, Catalan, but you do. She does. She's, she's just like admitted it, more or less. And to herself. And that's important. Being able to admit yeah. it to yourself. And you're talking about, you know, these other things that come along with pregnancy. And I'm thinking again of Liza, right? Or, I mean, this is literally mm-hmm. the story of both Catelyn and Brienne's mothers, right? They mm-hmm. die in the birthing bed. And, you know, how, uh, you know, Liza, it's not just, you know, you're talking about the, the other health effects that come with it. It's not just in the birthing bed. Even, like, you could get an infection right your life can be put Mm -hmm. at risk for other reasons or uh lies in her miscarriages that in and of itself is a huge toll as well and also comes with a lot of like complications so Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting as they as they level here and there's this line you know that i think is interesting this idea or this concept that brienne brings up of you know when you're armored it's hard for anyone to hurt you and it reminds Mm -hmm. me very much of Tyrion's advice to Jon Snow of, you know, take what words that of, hurt you know, you never forget wear them now. Like, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> never forget what you are, for surely the world will not make it your strength, and it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it will never be used to hurt you. And, you know, I think Tyrion's actually got it a little wrong, and I've written about that elsewhere in, a, in an essay. It's about Sansa, but it's funny that Brienne comes to that same conclusion. Here she's talking about it much more literally in terms of battle, but it's something that I think is clearly it's a lesson she's still wrestling with and hasn't gotten there yet in terms of armoring herself with who she is because she's still trying to figure out her identity too. I mean, she's also like what, yeah. 23 or something. Like, Yeah, she's 19. Oh, isn't yeah, 19. she at the start of the story? Yeah, she's still uh, also really young. People are still finding themselves out at that time anyway yeah really young and i do think there's like a certain in the middle approach to that right of that armor obviously i mean this becomes something so glaring in brienne's arc for her as 
you go into feast right when when she has to bury nimble dick she just apologizes yeah oh god what i'm a wreck i can't even talk about that don't get me started uh, i'll cry all night i'll cry all night but when she just says i'm sorry i couldn't trust you i don't know how to do that anymore when you've been hiding your whole life right behind your armor uh hiding who you are and who you want to be and what you want it, it's hard it doesn't make it easier to come out of that armor and I think that Tyrion, too, has done that, and he's going to see a very largely adverse effect due to that, right? I- I'm mm-hmm. sure he's going to have some issues moving forward. <laughs> a <Yeah>. few. <laughs> yeah, I, just a few. Just a couple, you know. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> they go on to discuss that children are a much different battle, that there are no banners, no war horns, but it's not any less fierce. Catelyn says Brienne's mother must have told her of the pain, and Brienne tells her I never knew my mother. My father had ladies, she says, a different lady each year. Catelyn counters, that's, they aren't ladies, Brienne, which I'm like, we don't slut shame here, Cat. I agree. It's kind of weird. It's like a weird, less good version of Sansa being like, those were no true knights. But here I'm like, shut the fuck up, Cat. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to be honest, like, that's also Catelyn's personal bias showing as she's about to think of Ashara Dane and about Jon Snow in just a couple minutes. Right. It also feels like that seems like a Selwyn problem. Also, like, I mean, I don't know, maybe he's just trying to drown the depression. Yeah. You know, I mean, by just planting it in holes. Or he just wants to casually date, you know, that's fine, too. Yeah. Selwyn swiped right. <laughs> God damn it. So we have this line of, uh, from Kat of, As hard as birth can be, Brienne, what comes after is even harder. At times I feel as though I am being torn apart. Would that there were five of me, one for each child, so I might keep them all safe. And who would keep you safe, my lady? So in response to that, Catelyn smiles, saying that her mother taught her that the men of her house would keep her safe. But for now, they are away, and Brienne must fill their place. And Brienne bows her head and says she will try. And that kind of makes me wonder, is that part of why... At the end of A Feast for Crows, Lady Stoneheart's, like, real mad. Besides the part of, you know, like, Lady Stoneheart and what we were discussing yeah. about the extremes of her character. But is it that Brienne was supposed to be better, right? Yeah, In Brienne was supposed to fulfill, like, everything she lost. She was yeah. supposed to be a better Catalan and be able to fulfill both of these gender roles uh, and, you know, go forward with better knowledge. Like, it does seem like she's trying to, like, teach her... Oh, so you just, you never had a mother, you poor thing. Well, I'm going to teach you everything you never learned about how the world works. But it's like Catalan's learning right now about how the world works. And she's like, but maybe I too can learn. And you know what? As someone, again, <laughs> Catelyn, you're not that old, all right? There's still a lot to learn in life. Yeah, she does. She does have some narrow-minded moments in this chapter like that. Yes. Later in the day, Maester Vyman brings a letter of desperation from Lord Meadows, the new castellan from Storm's End. He has declared Stannis the true-born rightful heir at Storm's End, and Sir Courtney Penrose is dead. Gasp! I know, it's awful. Terrible. Catelyn doesn't really know the man, but she grieves for him. She definitely feels like some major grief to hear that he has died. And she says, well, Rob must know at once. Maester Vyman plans to dispatch a rider out to Ashmark because that's where Rob was last marching from. You know, toward the crag to House Westerling. Never heard of them. Seems Bow unimportant chicka, wow, to wow. the story. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. It's about to go down. 
well, he's gonna west in the hurling. I don't know what that was. <laughs> I don't either. Nothing is said in the letter that gets sent about Robert's bastard, and Catalan's like, hmm, I expect that boy was yielded to Stannis, though I don't really understand why Stannis wants him so badly. Brienne ponders this. She wonders if he fears the boy's claim, and Catalan's like, no. Uh, she's like, no, no, I fear a bastard's claim. That can't be. <laughs> she doesn't say it, but she's thinking it. <sighs> she asks what this boy looks like, and they deduce he looks like Robert. Stannis must mean to prove the incest claims. Brienne wonders if that can truly hold that much weight, and Catalan tells her, those who favor Stannis will call it proof. Those who favor Joffrey will say it means nothing. Amazing. You know, the usual with politics. <laughs> but, so it's interesting because, like, you know, I know that our, our friend Brendan B. Fish has hypothesized that what Catelyn thinks that Stannis might want to do with Edric Storm might be what varies if he has Edric, right? Might be his plan, mm -hmm. right? To, to trot out these Baratheon children and be like, oh, look, this is what they're supposed to look like. Though, interestingly, at no point does uh Catelyn come across this is what like a normal person would think right she's like this is what a normal person would do with you know their brother's bastard son who looks very much like him but she doesn't hypothesize what what Stannis is really doing considering that he's she's already seen proof of his like magic which is what if I sacrifice my brother's <laughs> son on the off mm. chance that it brings me dragons you know you say that and I will say that like maybe it's there just not said that she is thinking that because she does start it off remembering her shadows of her nightmares that's true but she doesn't I mean like but how could she even come up with that theory right like no that's true I'm not but well, no you're right know. you're right she is thinking of it because she's also like it's kind of weird that only Courtney Penrose died she's like this is very spoopy also it's kind of weird that Stannis literally just wanted the kid yeah She's, She's like, like, I don't really even like this place. It's a total shitbox. She's just like, I feel like I don't trust Stannis with kids. And you know what? She was right. <laughs> don't trust Stannis with kids. One more time. Catelyn was right. Uh, don't leave your kids. You know, speaking of people having anxiety when, you know, they leave their kids, you should have anxiety if you leave Stannis to watch your kids. Holy shit. Oh my god. You should have all of the anxiety. I have anxiety. Even watching even his own kids. kids, you know? Anyways. Shit. Well, we have this passage. Her own children had more Tully about them than Stark. Arya was the only one to show much of Ned in her features. And Jon Snow, but he was never mine. She found herself thinking of Jon's mother, that shadowy, secret love her husband would never speak of. Does she grieve for Ned as I do? Or did she hate him for leaving her bed for mine? Does she pray for her son, as I have prayed for mine? They were uncomfortable thoughts, and futile. If John had been born of Ashara Dane of Starfall, as some whispered, the lady was long dead. If not, Catelyn had no clue who or where his mother might be. And it made no matter, Ned was gone now and his loves and his secrets had all died with him. Wow. There's a lot to unwrap here. First thing... Lots of uh, lots of foundation being laid for the will argument. Next mm -hmm. book, right? Yep. Uh, that foundation's being laid here. Her wondering, why would Stannis want a bastard? Why would any man want a bastard? What's wrong with him? 
to uh, and, to and uh, sacrifice so to the dragon. Yeah, right. For, this is God. honestly, it's so good that she did not talk to Stannis for much longer oh than she God. did because she might have started getting ideas. She might be <laughs> like, right. maybe I should head home to Winterfell. <laughs> talk um, about a red lady, holy shit! Yeah. Uh, I I I do think there's just such a emphasis being put here on John and on yeah. bastards and on inheritance and her. Her deepest worries coming out that her children look more Tully than Stark, that Arya is the only one that looks like Ned, yeah. and that the others have her auburn looks and her high cheekbones and her eyes. Uh, I also, you don't see this coming, have to talk about a Shardane. What? <laughs> um, okay, so there's a really technical aspect of this sentence that has produced some new Chloe tinfoil. I know you're all thrilled. I want to talk about the construction of this sentence. If John had been born of Ashara Dane of Starfall, comma, as some whispered, comma, the lady was long dead, semicolon. If not, Catelyn had no clue who or where his mother might be. So, the whole point of a semicolon is that you're connecting two completely separate thoughts, right? So when you're grammatically making... A sentence that you're like, I want to throw a semicolon on in there. The way to tell if it works is by just like dropping one half of the sentence, right? On one side of the sentence, drop it. Does it work without the other side? Then it is fine to use with a semicolon. So, if John had been born of Ashara Dane of Starfall, as some whispered, the lady was long dead. But what if John had not been born of Ashara Dane of Starfall? Would the lady be long alive? Hmm interesting i'm just putting it i just i'm just saying i just feel like i feel like i've looked at this line of text so many more times than any of you have in your life listening eliana included like i've looked at this exact sentence and it has never done this for me until this week it has never moved this way until this week and it does kind of feel like a weird a weird way of george writing that and it could just be george using some stiff language. However, I really struggle to think that every word George has put into these books about Ashara Dane, which is only about 11 quotes about her, I struggle to think that he's not being careful with how he words it. Yeah, there's something going on there, and I feel like this this feels like a really interesting, not loophole, but, you know, like, clue. It is, though. It's like a loophole, right? It's a technical loophole that I'm like, wait a second, like Simon didn't say, that's a great way to use it. A loophole is the perfect way to put it. It is a loophole in the whole sentence structure, and it may be like do a double take this time through. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I think she alive. I think that's what that means. We know where she is. Indeed. We better know. As some whispered, Chloe. I'm the whisperer. <laughs> you are the whisperer. I'm the one who whispers. Ooh. I mean, it does also, I will say, like, and it made no matter, she thinks. Uh, which to her, it does make matter. Obviously, yeah, she's as we like, know. it Ka- doesn't matter. Kat's bothered. Yeah. matters a lot to her. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter to me, except it does. She, but that's a lot the of fact that it on. makes no matter, like, I feel like that's also George saying to us, like, it really doesn't actually fucking matter who his mother was. Well, it does, right? Considering. Yeah. Ned. And Liana. And, you know, the whole. Yes, promise. Everything that'll happen later. But, you know, I, I think it's Catelyn trying to, as you said, right? 
clearly it matters to her. And there's a lot of things that we see in her interiority where she's like, I guess that doesn't really bother me. And you're like, you seem pretty bothered. But I do. <laughs> you seem quite bothered, Catelyn. And, you know, amongst those, it is this idea of bastardy. She's like, you know, it's weird. She's like, it doesn't matter. And she's like, but it does matter because she's like, it's kind of strange how protective uh, and strange some of these men behave in the face of their bastard boys. But yeah, she's like, somehow Roose Bolton just does not give a shit about his son. <laughs> uh, judging from the letter that they received three days ago, which, I mean, understandably, uh, if my son were Ramsey, I too would be like, fuck, what happened? <laughs> and, you know... Coming back to Edric Storm, you know, it is interesting how Kat just earlier very much dismisses the possibility that Stannis uh, fears Edric's claim to the Iron Throne. And then, as we see, that segues into her thinking about John and wondering about John's mother, but she doesn't really think about John himself, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Like, I do think that. Cat does fear John's claim to some extent, and that's going to rear its head much more explicitly in A Storm of Swords. But as we've said before, like the way that she pivots here and thinks of the relationship that she imagines that Ned had with John's mother, and that again she's not thinking explicitly of John, and is like it can't the claim can't be that important. Um, makes it even more clear, <laughs> right? Like in the context, like of a discussion about duty. What what's really going on here with her emotions because Catelyn always did her duty as we've seen in this chapter whereas all of these men who have failed her thus far they were allowed to shirk theirs like from like Renly just straight up committing treason shirking his duty to his brother slash probably rightful king also the other kings that people all recognize uh you know the children right Joffrey yeah. uh, to Brynden and Edmure they were both allowed to refuse getting into marriages right like that that was never on the table for her yeah it was never on the table like Brynden has gone all this time without having to do that and Edmure could refuse until he found like I guess a bride that he wanted until now now that they're in a war and then also like Ned gets to just break his marriage vows and then come home bringing the proof of that broken vow uh, for everyone mm. to see, for her to have to see every day of like, you have to do your duty. I did not. And I will say part of how Kat feels towards John, again, it is misplaced and it is unjustified and therefore very harmful towards John, right? It's ire that should be directed towards Ned. But if she wants a manageable life within one where she sticks to those roles and does her duty, she couldn't afford to have it go to direct that at Ned because then she ends up feeling the same bitterness that Cersei has nurtured over these years. Uh, So instead, Kat has to compartmentalize all of that, and again, it manifests also quite abusively. And we see that buried within Catelyn's musings about bastards is that perhaps Catelyn sees bastards as a physical manifestation of men's desires, that men were even permitted to have desires, that They were allowed to voice those desires, and most importantly, that they were allowed to act upon them. Whereas desire is denied to women again and again. They can't even say it aloud. Their desires are silenced and just never go anywhere. And that's like what Kat does when she thinks of her own doubts and fears. She can't even voice those desires 
to protect mm. her children. And we see that then she projects those those kinds of desires onto John's, John's mother, wondering if John's mother also had desires that were denied her, such as the safety of her children, whether John's mother feels the same powerlessness that she's feeling right now, right? Because that's what this chapter is about, and that Catelyn feels in failing to be able to like do anything, right? Protect Ned, or maybe this other woman, right? Uh, having to give Ned up that she couldn't exert her desire over Ned. She has no power over what Ned will do and has no agency over her own life and the well-being of her child. She has no agency even whether she gets to keep her child, perhaps, right? Yeah. Like, And we see that ends up being the fate of some highborn bastards when we look at what happens with the Sand Snakes and how Oberyn takes yes. one of his daughters uh, from her mother. So, you know, there's there's a lot of that, I think, going on here with uh, this relationship that or not relationship, this this woman that uh, Catelyn is projecting onto when it comes to John as she reflects upon her own powerlessness to protect her children and her own life trajectory in general. But, you know, midlife crisis. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'd say it's more like three-fourths or five-sixths life crisis. Anyways, yeah, or sorry, like nine, eight out nine, of nine. nine. Yeah, it's got to be eight out of nine because she's a cat. Oh, that's true. Uh, that's right. And also because it, she's most of the way through because she dies. So. Yeah, that was the other part. Yes, that was what I was thinking. <laughs> I know. I was I was very soft. I was soft pawing that one in, you could say. Well, um, I'm here to barrel through <laughs> to ruin well, the joke. Well, I, I do want to come back to what you're saying, though, and the Sand Snakes is a great parallel to bring up, especially in light of what we're hearing about Roos and Ramsay with what mm. we're going to learn about his bastard in a moment, right? Uh, it does make me think about Ramsay's mom. She was just some woman, you know, in the North that Roos impregnated and then ruined her life with this yeah. devil spawn. Yeah, with the fucking Chucky doll Fuck. that is a character apparently that's really what he is he's like the chucky right. doll of all characters he's so annoying uh Roos had written they were marching on harrenhal in this letter and then he said if he must kill every living soul to make it robs he would ha <laughs> unless unless uh, <laughs> he kind of hoped this would be considered evening out the crimes of his bastard haha <laughs> unless <laughs> Uh, who Sir Roderick put to death, haha, <laughs> unless. <laughs> Bolton had written his bastard deserved it and that his new young wife would have provided him new true-born sons soon enough and they would be in danger if Ramsay lived. True. This is true. Uh, and suddenly, before Catelyn can even linger on any of this, which all seems so super suspect, that like if you had thought for a second to just... You know what it reminds me of? Even though he's not as evil, it reminds me of Bob on Veep, the uh, the, the guy that has the memory, you know, going, and he like ends up doing all this shit, and he's like, aha, and he doesn't know where he is. It's like if you didn't know better, this Roos Bolton had a master plan, you know. Like everyone thinks he's real smart. Like, oh, Roos knows what he's doing. Roos is totally good. Roos has the North in the best things for the North in his mind. It seems as the bells, right? Like suddenly, oh, a disruption. How convenient. Actually inconvenient. Very yeah. inconvenient for, you know, Kat who's eight nines of the way of her life through. Oh my god. <laughs> there are a lot of these moments that we keep coming across that there's no time for her to actually there's no time for her to actually think about what it means, what who's coming where and what that could mean, or wait a second, why is he doing this? Yeah, like that so, seems weird. That seems off. Definitely a disruption. Off. 
Sir Desmond's squire arrives and tells them Lannisters are coming from across the river. A column of colors, the purple unicorn, above the golden lion, most memorable. Suddenly, Catelyn remembers Lord Brax, who had come to Riverrun when she was a girl to propose one of his sons, marry her or Liza. She wonders if this is now that son leading the attack. Which, I have to say, this really brings out a great parallel for Catelyn and Brienne, right, who are constantly having to face their former suitors in this war in different ways. True, true, true. Desmond assures her that these are only outriders, and Tywin's strength is in the south. They are in no real danger, especially with Jason Ballister uh, in charge of defending the nearest fords. Jason's men hide behind rocks and then wait for the Lannister outriders. It's about 50 of them, and they come down on the men. The clash of steel on steel present. A clash of kings, maybe, if you will. Uh, the dead men begin to pile up, and the men on the walls shout taunts after the retreating men. Sir Desmond slaps his stomach, saying, Would Lord Hoster could have seen that? It would make him dance. And Catelyn says that his dancing days are past. Sir Desmond! Uh... And this is merely the beginning of the Lannisters, who have twice their numbers attacking. Desmond explains the environmental advantage they have, with the Red Forks West Bank keeping them in good cover. He says, the river will hold them. Yeah, the Lannisters do return that night, and Catelyn's awakened by a serving girl, so she climbs to the roof, she's wrapped in her bedrobe, and she watches over the moonlit river. Men wade into the river, splashing their way across. Most of them fall into the depths, or they gash themselves on the caltrops that are hidden. Malister bowmen fire a storm across the river, and Catelyn watches a man, alight with fire, pierced at least a dozen times until he falls into the stream and is carried off. I just thought that that was interesting, how that's noted, and like, you know, he falls into the river, he's carried off Black with water. his body, never to oh. be seen again. You know, interesting. Catelyn. Yeah, other other bodies. Catelyn's body floating down the river and see for me this is just like also the start of what it's going to look like for the Blackwater true you know men alight with fire I mean this is what Sandor ran from yeah it's hot stuff the fighting ends in a small victory for the northern faction and as they head inside Catelyn asks Brienne's thoughts on the battles Brienne provides actually really great commentary says that this is merely a brush of Tywin's fingertip he's looking for a weak point and if he doesn't find one he will make one at least that's what she would do were she Tywin is what she says and may the gods help us then Catelyn thought yet there was nothing she could do for it that was Edmure's battle out there on the river hers was here inside the castle she means the one inside her heart, you know, the one here. Uh, that we're <laughs> the conflict reading. with itself. Indeed. Uh, you know, I don't pull, I, I'm not trying to pull a lot of the Sansa parallels going on with Catelyn during this, just because I think they're pretty easily and well highlighted. But this one felt uh, very, very on the nose, especially because Sansa has her moon blood, right? Uh, and Cersei says the same advice to her that like, ah, this is your battle now. Your battle's going to be this. Womanhood. Sure is magical, Sansa. And that's kind of what we're going through, as we'll mention that, you know, Catelyn's kind of got her own Cersei and Sansa moment going with Brienne. Like, our battle's here inside the the castle now, Brienne, not out there. Well, she's like, I guess yours could be out there, Brienne, but it would be really nice if it were here in case the battle did come here, please. Yeah, just not today. (laughs) Maybe another day, Brienne. Uh, and And that other day, you know, maybe I'll just hang you or try to. Oh, for funsies. For funsies. 
<laughs> After breakfast the next day, she sends for Eutherides Swain. She asks him to bring Cleos Frey a flagon of wine so she can question him more easily later. A Malister rider arrives in the meantime, telling them of another skirmish and a victory. Lord Flemont Brax tried to cross six leagues to the south, advancing across river on foot, but the bowmen shot them down and the scorpions on the river sent stones crashing to break the formation. A dozen dead in the water, and they dealt with the rest briskly. Lord Vance was holding the fords upstream, and Catalin begins to think, wow, maybe I misjudged Edmure's abilities. He's not the little boy that I remember. Just like Rob. Nice. Justice for Edmure. Um, by evening, she visits a hopefully drunk Cleos Frey, who stumbles to his knees, pleading with her that he knew nothing of the imp's plans to spring the Lannisters. She commands him to rise and says she knows no grandson of Walder Frey would be an Oathbreaker. <laughs> Though she thinks, unless it served his purpose, which, yes. Um, that is why most people break oaths, Catelyn. That's true. That it, but it's also, you know, very much something you could expect, I guess, of the phrase. Cleo's Frey right. doesn't seem... He's he's just silly and... Anyways, so Catelyn commands him to tell her the terms he brought and he does she realizes that you know these aren't really any terms at all Edmure was right except for one that catches her eye she reiterates Lannister will exchange Arya and Sansa for Jamie, and he says that Tyrion sat on the Iron Throne and swore it before the whole court and gods but that Lord Edmure had said that King Rob would never consent and Catelyn thinks to herself you know true yeah because he could have <laughs> said as much before to her face. She can't even say that <laughs> Rob is wrong, right? You know, the Kingslayer's dangerous and the girls were... I mean, they're girls, right? No one's going to sing songs about them. So she asks how her girls look, if they were treated well. And she watches Sir Cleos drunkenly dig for a lie. And she's like, aha, that's a lie. So she cuts <laughs> off his search and tells him that he forfeit the protection of his peace banner when his men played them false and she asks him again did you see my daughters and he says that he saw Sansa beautiful but a bit wan and exhausted and you know what that girl should be exhausted she's she's had an exhausting life and time but he did not see Arya Shit. who's also probably exhausted but for different reasons she wonders if it is from like did they not bring Arya out to court because they fear what she may say or do maybe she's, she's headed wild. away yeah maybe <laughs> she's already dead and you know i it's interesting how no one's like optimistic here they're not like what if she got away you know which is what yeah. happens but I, I guess when you're nobody not nobody thought she could that's also true but if when you're only used to bad shit happening to you maybe hope isn't like something that you learn to think about um I think it's also easier for her to just let her go now. Yeah, that's true. Or she Which could make it very much so sadder if, haha. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's just easier, yeah, to just cut your limb off, right? Like right there, just be like, okay, well, there's one. Uh, honestly, it reminds me a lot of John's dream that he has uh, soon. It's either in the next John chapter or the last John chapter. John thinks about the direwolves in either the next chapter or the chapter before whatever whatever either the last john or the next john he thinks about how it should be six wolves but now it's only five and i think there's a bit of that here for catalin you know for aria that she's like I, she can't give herself hope because then it's just gonna hurt more when she gets that taken away from her too it just sucks i wish that she knew i wish she could just know 
that they're all there. They're all fine, Mom. Yeah. In fact, literally, it's just you and Rob. You guys are the fuck-ups. Yeah, well, except for, you know, I guess Bran and Rickon are threatened in a moment, but things surprisingly yeah. turn out okay for them. She asks Cleos who spoke for the crown during all of these negotiations, because he keeps saying his terms, and he's not quite saying who made it. And she's like, well, that's not Cersei, obviously, that made that term. And he says, the queen was indisposed, and Tyrion spoke in her place. She finds that really curious, and she begins to think about Tyrion and how he was very clever, how he had seduced Bronn to his side, and she wonders how he survived on the high road, but she's not surprised at all that he had. She thinks that, you know, Tyrion really didn't have a part in Ned's murder, and he did come to my defense, like, immediately when the clansmen attacked me. She really wants to trust him, and she's mulling it over, but she looks down at her hand and she remembers the bite of his dagger from the assassin, mm. and she's like, you know what, he's too clever, he must have lied about the assassin, the Lannisters are all liars, and Tyrion's the worst of them all. And this is a really interesting moment that she, like, really logically puzzles through it, and she's like, it doesn't feel like it, but... I do hate the Lannisters, so... <laughs> uh, yeah. I think people really get kind of up in arms sometimes about some of the decisions Cat makes, but this to me does stand out because Tyrion does seem like he could be a good guy, and she has to lump them all together because she's lost so much because of them. She can't afford herself to just be nice for a hot second. But yet, when she does decide to bargain with her daughter's lives and Jamie's life... She thinks, again, she is moved because of Tyrion. Like, she is yeah. moved to do it because of him. Because she thinks of him and thinks of his respectful way. And, and it's an interesting relationship. Uh, we'll talk in a bit about it, but she doesn't really, you know, with Tyrion, she was pretty appropriate as far as Tyrion as prisoner goes. And she was very, like, play by the rules. She doesn't do quite the same for the next Lannister she has captive. Yeah. And I mean, she can't afford it. She's like, I'm not going to make that mistake twice. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's such a great point. It's also, again, when some of those clues about the dagger, the Lannisters might have been happening. Again, those thoughts were interrupted. Same as how there are disruptions here about Roose being very, very strange. And as you said, the loss of Ned has kind of just colored over her interactions with all the Lannisters. She's very mm -hmm. much, um, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, you can't get fooled again. Um, can't get, can't get fooled again. Yeah, can't get fooled again. <laughs> Thank you, uh, former President George W. Bush. No, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, I love that line, though. <laughs> so it's only, I mean, the best use of it is in the J. Cole song, let's be real. That's also true. No, you're right. Fuck the peace signs. Ooh, that could be a good jam for Cat 7. Anyways. Anyways. Cleos protests that he knew nothing of the plan, and Catelyn agrees, leaving the cell with Brienne beside her. And this is the, the next part that I find the language in this exchange very interesting, because Cleos, when he's saying that he knows nothing of the plan, and he's protesting about it, and, you know, what does our auburn-haired Catelyn Stark say, you know, back in a... An interesting time in the story when another, you know, maybe like her fiery haired, similar haired girl gets introduced into the narrative. Catelyn says back to Cleos Frey, you know nothing. And 
obviously, you know, these lines are very important to John's storyline, okay? And John is, again, a looming presence for Catelyn in this chapter. And, you know, I will say, interestingly, perhaps their fates are kind of similar, right? In terms of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So there's there's so many ways that their storylines end up kind of intertwining like that. But I find it also interesting how earlier in this chapter, Catelyn thinks about how she knows nothing. She sits with it a little and then begins to experience that bitterness, right? That you're talking about, that road to Lady Stoneheart. And rather than marinating in the feeling that she knows nothing, she then externalizes it externalizes it and turns it and projects it onto Cleo's Frey and says to him, no, you know nothing. Whereas the way that John reacts to this idea of knowing nothing is John just really internalizes it and then like self-brutalizes with the terms of remembering Egret saying to him, you know nothing, which John decides clearly it shows that he's thinking, I know nothing, right? Um, and Catelyn throwing that you know nothing back onto Cleo's Again, that's her taking out her feelings on him. And interestingly, I would say that it's very similar to how her son, Rob, acts um, when it comes to his issues by projecting them onto others. Like, I think one of the most prominent examples of that, which will lead into the one coming up in these chapters, is when he blames Theon at first for uh, endangering Bran when the Free Folk attack south of the Wall. Mm-hmm. Um when Theon shoots an arrow, when really Bran was in danger because of Rob's negligence and leaving Bran behind without a guard. And then we'll see in a few mm. chapters later when Rob blames Edmure for not sticking to the plan that, you know, Rob never actually shares with Edmure. So how could Edmure stick to it? How could anyone stick to this plan? So whereas John inherits Ned's very self-punishing internalization, it seems that Rob... Rather, it seems to have gotten Catelyn's uh, sort of projection. That's a really well-spotted bit because he does he does lash out a little bit on some of those same aspects. And he is definitely a mama's boy. Wow. Well, we knew that. We, <laughs> we knew did that. Know that, yes. <laughs> we didn't know that one. Well. We have this thought from Catelyn. It is simpler for her. She was like a man in that. For men, the answer was always the same, and never farther away than the nearest sword. For a woman, a mother, the way was stonier and harder to know. I think this is kind of a very cold reading that Kat has about Brienne in this moment when she's mm-hmm. thinking of Brienne. Yeah. I don't think it's uh, very charitable. I think it's actually a bit selfish of her and cold because she thinks it's simpler for Brienne and she thinks she's like a man and she just categorizes her feelings as simple when Brienne has shown us throughout this chapter that her feelings on her gender and how she presents to people is actually really complex, right? Like yeah. that she wishes for freedom to be free to go out into battle. Um, she's not just a steely, silent man in armor. She's hinted to Catelyn that she has issues with her father, right? Who, mm-hmm. who bangs a different girl every time she blinks is basically what she kind of mentions. And that her father doesn't like to hear her sing. Uh, that was kind of sad in this chapter that she's like, no... No, my dad doesn't like when I sing. He's made jokes about it. That's Those are some things Brienne mentions in passing to Catelyn, and Catelyn doesn't really pick up on that. She just tries to reinforce her stereotypical norms on Brienne of, as we've discussed, kind of like, this is how the world should work. Those projections again, projecting her pain onto Brienne. Yeah, and 
Uh, just the idea of like for a woman, the way's stonier and harder to know. But Brienne is also a woman. Like that's not very fair. Brienne literally is a woman, and Brienne literally just told you how she felt about having a sword and armor and why she felt that way about not having to wait. And I think that's that bitterness in Catelyn. You know, for her, Brienne could just put on armor and disappear into the crowd of men and not have to deal in her mind. This is how Catelyn feels that Brienne doesn't have to deal with the backlash of that or that doesn't affect Brienne, which we have seen it does. It very yeah. much so does. Uh, and I think it's frustrating for her, uh, especially with the condemnation of Tyrion, we see this, that she longs to take action and never gets to. And she hates when others can. She hates seeing other people have freedom that she does not, with no feudal restrictions, able to kind of navigate between these roles, no waiting for a lord husband, no heavy skirts and hair pieces, no smiling gratuitously to please someone you don't like. She hates that. She yearns to get out of that so badly, and it's the life she can never get out of. You know, Brienne telling her I long to be out there where my gender doesn't really fucking matter and I can just go fight and not stay in this castle where everything's anxious. It does feel, not in a, a, a awful way, like I don't think it's as pointed, but it does feel like punishment. That cat is keeping her that close in a manner. You know, like, yes, Brienne yeah. swore to do it, but it does feel like punishment that she's forcing her to fit where she doesn't fit. In clothes, she doesn't fit. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is kind of, yeah, kind of projecting that onto her and, like, forcing her to do these things. But as you were saying all that, it, it suddenly stood out to me that in that last line, you know, she says, for a woman, a mother, the way was stonier. Ah. and harder to know and i'm like oh yes stone yes stone heart um there it is coming up again but you're talking about how catelyn you know kind of longs to have more of that freedom that ability to do things and to act and i agree but i want to you know clarify that it's not in the same way that cersei does because we obviously see cersei's chapters revolving a lot around that right um where cersei wants that freedom kind of by virtue of believing that she should have the right, that she is every bit as good as Jamie. Um, not necessarily because she believes all women should, but because she specifically does. And I'm realizing that the defining moment, right, for Cersei was kind of when she was constantly mistaken for Jamie and people would treat her differently. Kat's never had that moment, so she's never really learned to question her place or her duty. In that same way, it's it's Brienne in a way. Like suddenly she's like, wait, so I could have maybe done something a little different, even though she has those examples from Mage and and Daisy, right? Maybe she's just been like, Oh, but that's just how the Mormons do things. But Brienne's a Southern woman, same as Kat, who mm. is doing things differently. But as as you said, right, it's kind of unfair the way that Kat is acting towards Brienne, and that's again Catelyn projecting projecting that insecurity that especially now that she feels lost without the men to protect her or to tell her what her role is in relation to them, what her duty is. She longs for that physical power and that societal power and to own it, partially because she thinks that'll bring her clarity in terms of like her duty and her purpose, because then it that's defined. Because as a man, you are singular in your own purpose and duty. But also I think yeah. she wants to feel that protection again. She's feeling so much doubt and fear and... She doesn't necessarily want that power in order to exert over others, but just to exert over her own life, 
right? Which I think is a little different because that's how we see Cersei using her power over others. Mm -hmm. And Catelyn especially wants that power, as we see, to be able to protect her own children. And I think that gets emphasized in the previous few chapters with Rob being... I mean, he's, he's at war, right? And also as Catelyn's thinking of the safety of her daughters here. And you've, you've hinted at this, uh, but it's a perfect setup for the upcoming chapter. The ultimate, if you will, clash <laughs> chapter. And by that we mean it's the last clash chapter. The next one. Where she learns that she has failed to protect her youngest two children. Her sons that, again, include her favorite child. And together, these also help provide clarity into how we get to that big decision that Kat is going to make at the end of next chapter, where freeing Jamie is not only about the safety of her children, the entire this entire chapter that we're on right now, it is devoted to how Kat has always followed what she was told was right. She has never broken the rules, not truly. Every now and then we see her skirt the line, but she's never really broken the rules, especially when it comes to her duty. But when she's finally lost one of the first of the Tully words, that family, you know, allegedly. But she thinks she's lost her family. She's like, fuck it, and does away with the second one, duty. Because what is the point of keeping duty if it doesn't even keep your family safe? So she finally breaks away from duty and being the good lady in service to trying to secure what she can of her family. Yeah, it's it's so hard because like when these rules that you are re reinforcing and you are trying to keep control of don't actually do what they're supposed to do what's what's the goddamn point right yeah and i think something that's really glaring with cersei versus cat and how they handle their family is that the line for cat to brienne about splitting herself into five so that she could be with them and help them and keep them safe cersei's thoughts about her children are not splitting herself into five to keeping them safe, but more like splitting them into several children to keep her safe. Yeah. It's a bit of the opposite. You know, you mm -hmm. see where she clings to Joffrey, her firstborn, you know, of, of what's left of the life as it passes by her, the life that she's let go. And like, it, it just feels very different from Catalan's. Catalan doesn't see them as an extension of herself in that respect, not an extension of power, because like you said, she feels powerless. Yeah. She can't imagine them as granting her power. Mm -hmm. Just purpose. Ryman the Rhymer sings through the courses at dinner, so Catalan doesn't have to talk. She's very grateful for that one. Haha, <laughs> get used to it. Uh, <laughs> fuck what the fuck yeah <laughs> i'm just saying i mean, better start practicing now silent yeah. sister he sings the songs that he wrote of rob's ox cross victory so we actually finally get a lyric from wolf in the night and the stars in the night were the eyes of his wolves and the wind itself was their song perfect perfect depictor of gray wind of course the wolf in the night uh, though I do love the stars in the night were the eyes of his wolves. I think that's really beautiful and reminds me a little bit of, uh, of those crazy blue eyes that come up throughout A Song of Ice and Fire history and modern A Song of Ice and Fire, whether we're talking whites or, uh, whether we're talking a stone inside of your eyes, Mr. Star Eyes. But I do think now, now that we've heard a couple things about Ryman's songs and we finally get one lyric of this song, we're going to see this song come back. And it talks about multiple wolves, which we know there are multiple wolves 
out there and in the Riverlands they're getting pretty bad, but it does make me think this will be connected with Arya at some point. Hmm. Uh, Nymeria seems to be leading a gang, right? So I imagine this song might be being played at Red Wedding 2.0. Who knows? She's leading a wolf gang puck. I'm hoping Thomas Seven Streams borrowed the tabs from Ryman the Rhymer. Hmm. It could be fun. Or like friends. Well, <laughs> I like I like this part uh, where Raymond howls between the verses, and by the end, half of the hall would howl with them. And <laughs> I I would be part of that crowd. I'd be like, oh my god, this is the funnest song ever. Let's all howl. Uh, very. There exciting. is like a a theory on this, and I I don't think I have it right. I was just glossing over some theories, but. That uh, to look out for this, the howling in between the verses, and that uh. we are seeing the rivermen and the howling, that they're going to use it as kind of a feint to oh, uh, fuck with the people in the riverlands trying to, you know, assault their holds. Kind of like hiss with me, sisters. Yeah, almost, <laughs> but not at all. <laughs> not whatsoever, but mostly. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> uh. Well, Catelyn thinks, let them have their songs if it makes them brave. Brienne tells her of the singers that would come to Evenhall when she was a girl and that she learned all the songs by heart. And Catelyn tells her, Sansa did the same, though few singers ever cared to make the long journey north to Winterfell. And then she thinks, I told her there would be singers at the king's court, though. I told her she would hear music of all sorts, that her father could find some master to help her learn the high harp. Oh, gods, forgive me. <sighs> This is one of the saddest little passages in the entire thing. It kills me. And I will say this is like the big parallel moment to Ned realizing I killed her wolf. And Mm. what for? What for? This is the moment Catelyn realizes that she did not equip her children for the future. Like properly. That she just sent them off just like she was sent off. Right? Like she had a better equipping than they did. She got to learn to be the lady of the house and understand what she needs to run things Sansa just got sent to the the princess factory. You know, she just got shipped on south, Arya too, and and she let them go in her heart, as we said, she had to. But this is hard to finally realize when the next chapter, your sons are quote-unquote dead. It's, It's gonna be really hard that she just realized this, and this line really does make me think of just, just how ill-equipped Sansa was. Like, that's what they told her. You're gonna go to King's Landing and get harp lessons. Not, you're going to King's Landing where people are politically ambitious and could murder you like your family was murdered here. Yeah, pretty much. Or, hey, you know how your grandfather died? (laughs) Right. But I guess Catelyn doesn't know the exact story of that yet. Yeah. You know, something that really stood out to me in this chapter is this line where Brienne says to to Catelyn and she's thinking about singers but she recalls a woman from across the narrow sea singing in a foreign language with eyes the color of plums and a waist so tiny her father could put his hands around it and these details tell me that his her father was putting his hands around that waist right that's what I'm wondering I'm like did he that's what I thought right you took that too so I'm like so he was fucking the singer but also you know there is a little bit of a of the idea that maybe Brienne could have some Targaryen in her, possibly people have kind of theorized, uh, or be from a Targ line, right? Or Ray's line, as we've talked about. So the idea that an Eastern singer with purple eyes 
Yeah. That's interesting, too, that he was into some more maybe Valyrian or Eastern looks. Uh, but yeah. it does to me, that does tell me, like, that he was hooking up with this singer. Uh, yeah, and I again, that Catelyn's that right. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, those were no ladies. <laughs> I mean, I guess in the technical sense, yeah, yeah. right? Like, but she's know, not right. Formal sense. Exactly. Slut shaming. Yeah. Well, apparently, you know, his hands were almost as big as Brienne. So Brienne's hands, I guess, you know, maybe Brienne just said, I could have put my hands around her waist. You know what they say about big hands? The better to write fanfic with. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, Catelyn asks Brienne if she's saying for her father, and Brienne, embarrassed, shakes her head, saying that her father preferred a fool who made cruel japes sometimes and stuttering off. And then Catelyn says that she must sing for her someday, and Brienne, still very embarrassed, says she has no gift, and then begs for leave to go. Don't make people who don't want to sing, like, sing. Like the priests, you know? Well... Honestly, I- I'm literally not even kidding. Kind of feels like a cat is Sandor, Brienne is Sansa thing here, mm. right? Like sing for me yes. with the Blackwater later, uh, and also me. that like men are like on fire going into the river. You know, uh, yeah. it-, it does feel like that mini Blackwater kind of thing. And yes. also, it reminds me of the first episode of Game of Thrones at the Winterfell feast when Cersei's like. You must make something for me sometime, Sansa. Then she like turns to Cattle and she's like, like a grandchild. <laughs> uh, I think the one time that like they really interact and we're like, maybe we're having fun together. And they're like, no, not really. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because what Sandor might be Brienne's mm-hmm. basically is confirmed. Whatever. Brienne's yeah. relative. Relative. So, you know, something else it reminds me of is earlier you were talking about how Catelyn's holding Brienne back from participating in the fighting, and we see that, you know, Brienne definitely has a mind for it, besides the parts of the obvious strength and skill, and uh, we'll come back to that in a second, but... You know, talking also about, you were saying that the songs are basically war propaganda, Mm-hmm. Brienne is quite eager to fight and prove herself on the battlefield and I think you know she was never good at singing songs so it's like maybe you know if she couldn't perform them she kind of internalized that and decided she would just live up to them right and mm-hmm. you know she's not going to be like Jonquil in the way that Sansa sees maybe those as like her role in, in these songs right the beautiful maids and Brienne says okay if th- I don't fit that then I'll just fill in the other part of the songs the knights right and it's kind of very similar to how bran is at the beginning of the books and it's really interesting how rather than giving up on the songs entirely bran just finds herself a new role whereas catelyn is struggling to struggling to find herself a new role i think that's part of what catelyn envies that after having done what the songs and society have told her to do this whole time where does her song end then like what happens when the song's over and what songs are sung of the women who do their duty? None, because it's what Westeros expects of women. And though women's roles like are valued in terms of like who's going to create clothing, right, for when the winter comes, running households, producing heirs, amongst you know other things like the agricultural aspects, right? Not necessarily for ladies, of course, but it isn't glorified in the same way that valor in the songs is. Yeah. It's uh it's interesting, you know, that 
Brienne does come from the camp that has kind of a lot of political propaganda going on, too. Yeah, that's right? true. Like, she really believed in Renly's dream, and he straight up sold it to her on a platter with sugar sprinkled all over it, and it turns out it was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it was all a lie. Yeah, it, it was a lie. It was a lie. Um, She ends up being quite more glorious of a warrior than a lot of them in that camp. Yeah. Well, and that also feels like that's part of her plot, right? Like, she is yeah. writing her own song. That is Brienne's thing. Like, she is going to write her own song and be her own version of a hero and her own, you know, amalgamation of, like, gender. All of these different properties of what, what she sees in herself and her strengths and her weaknesses. Like, I think Brienne really embodies a lot of that so well. And I, I think her writing her own song and being her own hero of her own song is so important. Yeah, absolutely. She gets to kind of play both parts, in a way. Yeah. Be your own hero. Do it for yourself, girl. Well, five days later, they receive news of victory once more, again foretold by Brienne. The rider is trembling with exhaustion, but delivers the news all the same. And again, I think this is an, a great call it because, like I said earlier, Brienne's a proficient fighter, but as we've seen, being a good fighter doesn't necessarily make someone a good strategist in terms of you know military and commanding and stuff like that but i think that brienne shows promise because brienne may not have said what the winning strategy is here for this battle right but in calling every single one of tywin's moves it shows that brienne has a mind for it because tywin's basically considered one of like the greatest westerosi like military minds until rob like who's just like a prodigy, Wolfboy Wonder, comes along. And in showing that she knows each of the moves that Tywin is going to make, I think that shows that, A, again, that's, that's great skill because Tywin's considered skilled. But also it's important in that it means that if Brienne can figure out what and exactly when, right? Earlier she goes, now, and then like fighting erupts. She can predict that what and when of someone's attack that means that brienne has the capability perhaps to think ahead to what a counter strategy to such an attack would look like but you know no one's really ever let her lead anything like that yet yeah her tactician like her work as a tactician throughout this chapter is really apparent because she yeah. i mean even when she's like well you know what tywin should do is blah 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 she's like well that's that's what i do if I were Tywin, it's like sitting next yeah. to someone who is so skilled at a sport, right? And it can call – my dad is a football sport fanatic. He's every sport fanatic. He loves sports. But, you know, you could sit with the man during a football game and he will tell you, here's what you got to do. What you really should have done in this play is you should have taken this guy, moved him onto this field, done this, and you should have taken that and that guy should have grabbed him, blah, blah. And you like it, – it's like a science. It's like a math, right, mm -hmm. when I hear him do that. And that's what Brienne just did. She called the play ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. And may I don't know if it's like meant to just be for like the plot so that we know what happens, but I'm going to take it as Brienne's very top-notch Brienne mind. is the top commander in the world. Thank you. Yep. Court that's adjourned. It. Um <laughs> that's canon. Basically. And for what it's worth, like Tywin tries to cross at every point he can from what they hear. Uh, and they throw him back each time. Lord Lefford drowns. Strong Boar of Craig Hall is captive. Adam Marbrand is forced to retreat three times, but the fiercest battle is fought against Sir Gregor Clegane and his men at the Stone Mill. He ends up losing his horse, 
retreating and bleeding across the entire Red Fork. And Edmure writes that they shall not pass. Oh, that's a thing. Yeah, and I was like, Benin- isn't that a thing? That's a, that's a, well, he says they shall not cross, and I was like, that's oh, that well. thing from that series. I don't know. <laughs> well, see exactly. The men in River Run, especially Desmond and his crew, are ecstatic. They're celebrating. They're like, we gotta find Ryman to write a new song. And Kat's like, no, we're not gonna do a new song. None of this new song bullshittery. Fun is banned. It's wartime. (laughs) (laughs) Fun Fun is is now illegal. It is illegal to have fun in River Run. And Desmond, though, is like, come on, boss, come on. And she's like, fine, you can go tell everyone that we won something. So he goes and announces the victory, and the castle rings with celebratory shouts from small person to lord of River Run, Tully. Uh, they're all just yelling along, and I think that's really great, because you need that morale in this long and awful war. And mm-hmm. honestly, I love coming back to Edmure in this, now that we have him back here for this writing. I love what Stephen Adewell said about Edmure in his coverage of this chapter over at Race for the Iron Throne. Edmure reads, not as a man loyal to Rob, like what you were mentioning, but a man exercising his own demons, right, in his father's name, trying to live up to that on the battlefield in his own right. And in a way, that's exactly what Catalin is ramping up to do in her next chapter, right, living Mm. up to who she is and exercising her own demons that she's held in for so long. But there's something really hollow about this ending, as we know for Catalin at the end of this chapter that we will read in a moment, but also... For Edmir, these victories, these mini victories, they've been nothing but feints to cover Tywin's move back to King's Landing, right, as he tries to get there in time for Stannis descending. These honestly aren't real battles. What we learned is we learn via Roos that Tywin knows. Tywin knew what was going on and that he had to get to King's Landing. So Mm -hmm. as we get the unraveling when Rob comes back and he yells at Edmir a lot, you know, because he's mad about what he did. As we get that back, uh, I want to pay attention to some of those details because it kind of does feel like it was for naught. This was a lot of wasted resources for naught. Yeah. And that's also like when she thinks about like, oh, interesting. So Stannis is freed up now. So it all it all collides at very Mm -hmm. poor timing for the Stark Tully. Like, even if you could get your kids back right now from the Lannisters, you can't. There's war happening right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But, um, it is interesting. A lot of it is used for nod, and then, I guess, everyone dies. And, um, I mean, think of the small folk that could have been hurt. Like, it's not for nod in the end. Like, obviously, he's still... And to be and fair, those small folk might be more important than, you know, the, the big guys in that moment and the land. But... Yeah. But I guess it's a lot just, of them die, too, in the Red Wedding. They all, yeah, they lose a lot of their people, too, in that. I mean, not a lot, but a, a couple, a handful, you know? Enough yeah. to where it's like, was it worth it? Yeah. I mean, that is the question that is raised, And Tywin course. did it smartly. Yeah. Well, the timing ends up really unfortunate for them, because then they find out in that moment, right? Like, that's enough time for Tywin to turn back around when Stannis, yes. you know, the Blackwater. And it's just all very unfortunate that the chips fall the way they do. Right? Because otherwise, like, this, what Edmure did wouldn't have been, like, such an impactful event. It was impactful, yeah. obviously, for the people whose lives were defended in that mm-hmm. moment. But, yeah. 
And I mean, Tywin played homes. on that. He knew that Edmure yeah. was probably hungry for glory to prove himself with a That's dying true. father and That's a family true. that they'd basically cucked with their war weapons, you know? Like, uh, you've yeah. put these people within their walls of their building. They can't really do much. There's war yeah. waging out there. So I think Tywin knew where he had them. And That's true. uh I mean, you have Brienne at the start saying, that's what I'd do. Yeah, Tywin read him for filth. That's a that's read a phrase I learned recently, and I really wanted to use it. Oh, you recently learned it? Oh, honey. <laughs> so, oh, my I'm goodness. Not gra- I'm not great with, like, sayings and idioms. Um, I'm, I getcha. Yeah. I getcha. Well, now we got this, uh, the ending. You know, the ending of this chapter. Raymond played his harp, accompanied by a pair of drummers and a youth with a set of reed pipes. Catelyn listened to girlish laughter, and the excited chatter of the green boys her brother had left for a garrison. Good sounds. And yet, they did not touch her. She could not share their happiness. In her father's solar, she found a heavy leather-bound book of maps and opened it to the riverlands. Her eyes found the path of the red fork and traced it by flickering candlelight. Marching to the southeast, she thought. By now they had likely reached the headwaters of the Blackwater Rush, she decided. She closed the book even more uneasy than before. The gods had granted them victory after victory, at Stone Mill, at Oxcross, in the Battle of the Camps, at the Whispering Wood. But if we are winning, why am I so afraid? Yeah. Insert meme. Are you winning, son? No, Dad, I'm not. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it's uh, very foreboding, very hollow, and I think it's great to precede next week's chapter that we'll be covering with Monero uh, on, you know, what Catalan's going to do to make herself feel like she's winning. Yeah, especially after, I mean, I think we find out probably why she feels so afraid that turns out the fears end up kind of paying off, but we know they don't really pay off because it's mm-hmm. not real in that way, but it also kind of, anyways. <sighs> those twists and turns in this story. Yes, yes. You know, I, uh, I'm honestly kind of getting sad because after next week, we're at, we're at Storm. You only started getting sad now. Oh, you mean we're the, gonna, we're gonna finish Cat. It's yeah. over, yeah. I mean, so then we'll head to the next POV, whomever that may be, and everyone will just have to tune in and find out yep I mean, i've seen some guesses I, yeah i've seen some people guesses. Will, uh, there's always guesses you know there's always guesses there's only very few and by that i mean one right answer <laughs> uh well we're gonna leave you on that till next time so if you're thinking about who you think might be next in the girls gone canon pov book here in the canon so to speak you can feel free to tweet that at us over at our social media at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n or send us an email with your thoughts on the episode or your thoughts on who you think the next pov could be girls gone canon at gmail.com Yes, and of course, be sure to keep up with us in our new episodes, and especially be sure to subscribe so that you can tune into next week's episode with our guest, Monero. You can find us on Podbean, Google Play, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Acast, Stitcher. Wow. Every That's time. a good run. And you know what? We're you not on YouTube. We're not on YouTube. But Monero's on, on YouTube, YouTube, so you should check her out. <laughs> you can find us sometimes with Monero on YouTube. Yes. 
But, but I you think should they definitely find her. The ginger yes. ale chats that we've done with her. So yeah, those are live only. You got to be there to experience those are special, it. Special limited edition. <sighs> uh, and be sure to check us out over at Patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Girls Gone Canon. There are bonus episodes available for patrons in the Stranger tier and above, the $5 and above tier, every month. And we do host a monthly brunch and happy hour over on Discord. For our patrons in the Thunder tier and above, we will be having our August brunch and happy hour on August 28th. So feel stay tuned for more details on that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks, and we'll see you next week in the Cattle and Tully River Run Sex Dungeon. Oh my god. That actually is... That's the chapter. Yeah, I know. That's literally it. (laughs) Alright. See you there, friends. Bye. (laughs) Or foes. Oh. Sexy.